You're listening to Transforming the World for Girls, a three-part ODI series exploring the lives of adolescent girls in developing countries. In these podcasts, we travel between Nepal, Uganda, Ethiopia, and Vietnam, interviewing not only the field researchers who produced the four years of work behind this series, but the girls and women in these regions. By exploring the gender norms that affect adolescent girls, we can learn how to transform their futures. Hi, this is Aisha, and here is my story. Episode 2, Change is Challenging. Before we start, if you haven't listened to part 1 of this series, we recommend you start there and then listen to this episode afterwards. It will all make a bit more sense if you do. In episode 1, we explored what gender norms are and how they are changing. We looked at the role of boys and men and how they can support change for girls. And we travelled to Nepal and heard from three generations of Nepali women about what changing attitudes to child marriage and girls' education meant to them. Episode 2 is about the challenges of changing gender norms. Changing ingrained norms isn't always easy. The paradoxical nature of change means that it can create unintended consequences. Often, when social norms change, it can provoke resistance and backlash, in some cases even causing discriminatory gender norms to harden. Backlash is being experienced by girls and women all over the world, right now. In some countries, women's reproductive rights are being challenged and access to vital health services are being revoked. As you know, I'm pro-life. Right? I think you know that. Um, and uh, I've, with exceptions, with the three exceptions. We need to immediately demand proper justice and the rapist should be immediately identified and proper that person should be properly penalized. Women's bodies are highly politicized. We're seeing that played out yet again in the States post the election and Donald Trump with the backlash against women's rights over their own bodies and their reproductive rights. So we can see that norms are never stable. Even ones that we think have been achieved can go backwards and women have to constantly assert their rights and push back against regressive policies. In this episode, we're also going to explore what needs to happen so that change can both take place and be sustainable. We're going to hear stories of some of the unintended consequences which can arise when tackling harmful norms like child marriage. And in the final part of this episode, we're going to look at some of the powerful forces that are pushing back against change. Our researchers will take us to Uganda to show us what's stopping change from happening. But first, let's go to Ethiopia, where strong policy and legal frameworks are credited for declining rates of child marriage. But, as Dr. Nicola Jones explains, some communities are finding ways to circumvent the law, or are unaware that laws have changed. 
people know what they're supposed to say. They, you know, quite often they know that it's supposed to be girls shouldn't get married to 16 or 18. And when you first start a focus group discussion, everyone says, oh, yes, everyone here gets married after 18. Obviously, when you dig deeper, you realize that's not the case. And increasingly, people are coming up with ingenious strategies to circumvent the law. So they'll tack a, a marriage on to another big festival. So typically, you know, marriage will be sealed with a feast, but people are finding ways to integrate child marriage into that feast, for example, or you go to a district where there hasn't been that broader sort of community discussion around child marriage. And you can get your daughter married off early there. You can fake the ID cards about the age. Nicola, a senior researcher at ODI, talks about how the kinds of change which we can see happening can actually reflect very limited choices for girls. What's been really interesting in Ethiopia is just seeing increasingly it's not the parents arranging the marriage to get girls married at an early age. Increasingly, it's girls, um, inverted commas, choosing to get married for a number of reasons, partly because they don't have any role models about girls who've had an education and gone on. So it's hard to know, you know, is this really feasible for girls? Secondly, we talked to quite a lot of girls who had said that the surveillance they're under by their parents, often by their big brothers, just broader, you know, family, extended family and neighbours, about every movement that they make. If they talk to boys, they might be beaten up. You know, they're under constant surveillance and there's this fear of violence. So sometimes they say it's just easier to get married and then at least, you know, there's an end to that kind of, you know, restrictions that permeates every sort of, you know, aspect of their waking hours. So at first it may appear that girls have increased say over who and when to marry. But in reality, the overriding norm hasn't changed and they are still being guided into some of the same restrictive pathways. And I think the other thing is because of this focus on sexual purity for adolescent girls, there's not a dating culture. So the idea is, you know, if you have a boyfriend, then that's going to lead to marriage. So then girls will end up, you know, often marrying the the first boy that they have an interest in or has an interest in them. And that came up quite strongly. So, you know, on the one hand, as sort of child rights champions, we want to support girls' agency, but in these kinds of conditions where there's not a lot of options for girls in terms of you know, going on to university or then once you're in university, will that education translate into job opportunities? So in in these kinds of situations, girls, you know, often see marriage as as a more attractive option. A similar paradoxical issue in formal cohabitation was experienced in Uganda, as researcher Carol Watson explains. One of our key findings on the type of change that we were seeing in the rural area of Uganda where we were um, conducting our field work is the rise of form of informal marriage or cohabitation, which they call uh, marriage through the window. They had a local term for that. Now, this on the one hand showed um, and gave evidence of a sort of an increase in the agency of adolescent girls in the rural areas we were studying in Uganda to actually individually choose their partners. They sort of were resisting the customary uh, marriage arrangements that are the institutionalized arrangements between parents of the bride and the groom, uh, cemented with bride wealth, with the spouses uh, chosen by family, and they were individually choosing each other. And so on the one hand, we could see this as an expansion of girls' positive agency. On the other hand, 
some of the forces that were propelling girls into this type of cohabitation or marital union were actually negative forces. They're either trying to escape abusive homes or they are trying to escape the poverty of their natal households and are thinking that they will be better off in the household of their partner. Or for, for other reasons, they, they're not making a positive choice. It's a sort of a negative choice out of fear of the other options or being fed up with the other options that are presenting them or having no other options presented to them. Carol Watson is a social anthropologist and development specialist working on policy research, social protection and gender. Carol was an international country lead for ODI's adolescent girls' research in Uganda. So these issues arising from shifts in gender norms show that the nature of change is challenging. What's also difficult is tackling the many forces which are driving continued harmful gender norms, such as poverty, without improving conditions and opportunities for girls, their families and the wider community, harmful practices and behaviours will continue. In Uganda, poverty can drive girls into transactional relationships with older men, referred to as sugar daddies, as researcher Dr Florence Chihire Muhanguzi explains. A sugar daddy is uh, a grown-up man who is uh, engaged with a sexual relationship with a young girl. Professor Florence Chihire Muhanguzi is a gender activist and senior lecturer and researcher at the School of Women and Gender Studies at Makerere University. The men who have the money, who can provide for the girls, those things that the families are not able to provide, having them luring girls into sex and sometimes uh, early marriage. The whole issue of sugar daddy is around poverty and taking advantage of the girls, especially those from poor households. The phenomenon of so-called sugar daddies in Uganda also reflects the loosening of protective norms for girls and young women, which previously could have prevented such relationships from occurring. Whilst expectations around girls' behaviours have changed, where conditions of poverty have not improved, they remain a powerful force driving girls into transactional sex. Paula Perez-Nieto is an economist specialising in social policy, protection and development. Based in Mexico City, she has conducted research across Africa, South Asia and Latin America. I think that this particularly common in, in many of the African countries that we've done research in. I mean, it's, it's certainly triggered by poverty, by lack of access to opportunities. And so girls suddenly see as their only option to get additional resources is by engaging with a man sexually and that they will pay them. Usually in kind, it's not even, we're often surprised by the what is in the transaction, girls will ask for soap in return or maybe some clothes. So it's not huge gains for the girls, but um, th these are things that they value and which they're not able to get with the, the availability of resources in their households. But I mean, I think part of the, the problem or the situation is that parents consent to this um, because, I mean, they see that as a way of girls getting access to things that they're not able to provide. So we have explored how change can be challenging and how it can be difficult to create meaningful improvements and gains for girls. Now Rachel Marcus and Paula Perez-Nieto talk about how in order to tackle poverty, meaningful employment opportunities must be created. 
as international companies have outsourced a lot of their back office functions to India, you know, the sorting out of call call centre queries and issuing of airline tickets and so on. As those sort of opportunities arose, they were office jobs, they were considered to be clean and safe and good jobs to have and they paid well, but you needed to have secondary level education. In the areas where those opportunities arose, there was evidence of, once families knew about that, a quite quick shift to investing in their daughters, getting them into secondary education so they could take up those, those jobs. Rachel Marcus is a freelance social development researcher focused on gender, childhood, youth and adolescence. In some recent research we were doing on, on livelihoods of young women, we found that when this equation changed, and even some of them who had had children at a very young age, as a result of either early marriage or transactional sex, the fact that they had been part of a program that allowed them to, to gain skills and education that enabled them to then have a very small business, maybe just selling vegetables, not even in the market, but in a stall close to their house, but just you know having something that was their own, they would then say, we don't need to engage with men anymore because now we have our resources. And now hear from 23-year-old Aisha from Uganda. I used to sell things like beans, firewood and chicken in order to earn money for school fees. I was talking to my auntie who advised me on many things. She used even to talk to my dad about my education, of which at last I succeeded. I just advise parents to put more emphasis on their daughters since they are the mothers of tomorrow. As we can see from Aisha's story, girls value their education and are prepared to work to pay for it. When parents can also see the payback from investing in girls, they are prepared to support them and change their attitudes to girls' schooling. For meaningful change to happen, it's clear that many other factors and conditions have to be right. Girls need realistic pathways out of poverty, role models and career opportunities to be able to aspire to change. People often talk about, you know, that it's really key to have an enabling environment. And by this, they mean you need to have, I think, community leaders who are genuinely committed to change around around child marriage and, and getting girls back into school. So some of the communities we've worked with in Ethiopia, for example, there's been um, enabling environment in, in so far as the women's union there will go um, house to house when a girl is dropped out of school and try and persuade parents to get their, the girls back into school. You know, persuade them this is really important for their futures and for the family's future. So I think that's key when local leaders and government authorities are genuinely behind the change. So we can see that an enabling environment is fundamental to positive gender norm change. Researcher Dr. Anita Gamir talks about how in Nepal, a multi-layered approach tackling health, education and well-being is helping bring about change in gendered norms. I think our social norms are changing due to a lot of effort put in by the government and the international community. Anita Gamir is a Nepali researcher focusing on norms relating to gender and adolescence. The push in education, the push in ending child marriage, the push in health sector. So a lot of uh, efforts to making 
a better environment for the adolescent girls in Nepal because a lot of norms are now relaxing. Now, for example, Nepal has done quite well in terms of the girls' education, girls' access to health services. And also, like, we can see that early marriage is still very prevalent, but also in a lot of communities, it's becoming very less in practice. There are strict norms for polygamy, for example, for sexual and gender-based violence. The, the, the police sector, for example, has done a lot of improvement so that girls and women can access justice. So there is strong evidence of changing gender norms in Nepal, Dr. Fiona Samuels is a social anthropologist with more than 15 years research experience, crossing the fields of public health and social development in Africa, Asia and Latin America. Fiona led ODI's four years of research into gender norms and adolescent girls in Nepal. So linking back to why this change is happening, I mean, I think it's, it's a range of things. So the range of programmes also that are coming into these areas, especially these, these remote rural areas, so there's a lot of NGO programming, there's a lot of government programming. There's much more sort of broader awareness of the importance of girls' schooling. They're also seeing sort of role models of girls who have managed to go to school and, had, and managed to get careers, you know, taking these role models that trying to emulate these girls. Alongside this community-level change, legal frameworks are vital to reinforce and support local progress on girls' rights, as Florence Chihiro Muhanguzi explains. Uganda has developed a national strategy for ending uh, child marriage and teenage pregnancy. That's a big uh, commitment that highlights a lot of discriminatory norms and pledging commitment to addressing them. And it has also put in place the national strategy for girls' education, which also highlights a number of gender norms and attitudes and beliefs that are, that are known to inhibit uh, girls' development, girls' uh, capabilities. As we have explored, sustainable change needs multiple parts of societies to shift their thinking of what is acceptable regarding any new norm for girls. Generating commitment across society requires real vision and leadership from the top so we can see that an enabling environment can help fast-track gender norm change. It takes time for changes to be acceptable to communities, so old expectations are maintained in some areas, even where you have progress in others, as Nicola Jones explains. So I think one of the key things we find as to why people, you know, keep to long-held social norms is because of their fear of, of backlash from family members or from, you know, gossip from community members. And I think one of the, the key examples we've seen in Ethiopia and in, in Amhara district is that, you know, families get their girls married off early or girls choose to get married off early because otherwise you'll be labelled with very insulting names once you reach a certain age. So when we ask people, you know, what is the latest you could get married, typically the, the absolute maximum was 18 or 20 years. After that, it's not just a matter of being, as we might say, on the shelf. The negative connotations are, are very insulting and, and no one wants to, to be labelled like that. Positive changes are being counteracted by those who disagree with them, often those people who currently hold power and want to maintain the status quo. 
On a national level, political inaction is a form of resistance or backlash, as Florence Chihiro Muhanguzi explains. Political uh, will is curtailed by not putting in place resources to implement uh, what is on paper. And so quite often you find that some of these initiatives are not implemented effectively. Just as political inaction can be seen as a form of backlash, so parents can also disagree with or simply be confused by new behaviours and expectations. In some Ugandan communities, change brings huge friction as adults are confused about their roles and can be seen as unsupportive of change, as Carol Watson explains. So parents throw up their hands at the lack of discipline among their children or if they can't get them to go to school or if the girls run off to get married because they say we can no longer control them because of child rights. They actually had a term for this generation of children calling them Museveni's children uh, because that's when the policy of all of these progressive policies of universal education and child rights were really being promoted and they said he should take care of them because we no longer can. There was a feeling among men that all of this led them to be in a situation of empty trousers, they would say. Well, if you're focusing on women's empowerment, then where does that leave us in terms of our traditional breadwinner roles, they would ask. And therefore, they said, and we were told, they would use that as an excuse to abandon even their traditional roles of supporting the household economically. This episode has unpacked some of the many challenges associated with changing gender norms. Our researchers have told stories and given examples of some of the unintended consequences which can arise when tackling harmful norms like child marriage. We've shown that unless poverty is addressed and girls and women are provided with meaningful employment opportunities and community role models, harmful practices and behaviours will continue. But when communities, government and institutions are united in efforts to transform girls' lives, real improvements can start to be seen. Finally, we've shown how progress on norms can be undone and explored how the backlash which can occur at a local, national and global level can stall efforts to improve girls' lives. Tune in to our next episode where we will be exploring approaches for empowering adolescent girls. We'll be talking about law reform, communications, and the importance of education when it comes to transforming the lives of young girls. This podcast series is just a snapshot of over four years of research on this topic. For more of our research on gender, adolescent girls, and social norms, visit odi.org slash worldforgirls.
This is just a snapshot of the four years of research into this topic. For more information and resources, please go to odi.com forward slash girls.